Well, hey, and welcome back to the Voices of Social Change podcast. This is part two of this week's interview. So if you missed part one, I definitely recommend that you run back and catch that before you tune in here. I've split it up into parts to make it a little easier to listen to, but that also allows us to spend an entire week with one social entrepreneur. And so if you're just hitting this one, this is the podcast where we interview a new social entrepreneur every week, learn the tools of the trade. So part two of this interview coming right up. Well, hey, Change Nation, and welcome back to part two of this week's interview. We'll go ahead and get that started right away, like I mentioned in the intro. Hopefully, if you're tuning in today, you have caught part one, but part two can be a great way to listen in and just get some quick insights. That's where I ask a lot of questions about tools that they're using. And then lastly, I chime in and just go solo for the last 15 minutes and kind of give you my key takeaways. So if that's all you're wanting to grab, part two can be a good standalone piece, but I still would recommend you tune into part one at some point to learn the story story of this cause-based founder and the, and the company that they created. So that's that. And the only other thing I just want to kind of keep mentioning this, you'll hear me mention this quite a bit here over the next few weeks, is our cause-based shopping guide, the story of 50 businesses, 50 causes, 50 ways to shop and change the world. I've done this with a partner organization called causeartist.com. We came together to create this guide and designed it to be your roadmap as you navigate the world of social good and social good companies. You can get that totally for free. It's an electronic guide and cause artists, they are graphic design geniuses. (laughs) So they put together an absolutely beautiful guide. So definitely take a look at that. Uh, You can click into that. I have a few little banners up on my website. It says shop with a purpose, or there's another one that says social good shopping guide over on the right kind of bar. But the best way really is just go to socialgoodshopping.com. Again, that's socialgoodshopping.com. Com. And I'll be putting the, the links to this in the show notes so you can click into that. But that'll get you that guide and we'll get it sent your way and get you kind of plugged into this whole world. Again, that's totally for free. Our gift to you, something we created to help you navigate this space. Lastly, if you're not on the Social Change Nation newsletter, go ahead and sign on there. You can link up with that at socialchangenation.com. And it's just on the right, the newsletter sign up. I'm also going to start putting this in the link in all of our show notes. You can click right into the newsletter if you want, because that's really just the best way to keep in touch with everything that we have going on. We send you a weekly update on Fridays, and that will get you the latest happenings here at Social Change. And we'll get you some easy links to click into these podcasts and keep them organized from part one to part two to even our bonus podcast, which you'll (laughs) see a little bit about here coming up. But okay, without any further ado, let's get to part two of this week's interview. Okay, and we're back with Dan of Thinkful, uh, an educational organization that is really revolutionizing the way that education occurs. And I'm here with Daniel Friedman, the founder of of Thinkful. He's a a Forbes 30 under 30 and has some really interesting perspectives on this. So now we want to dig in and talk specifically about a few questions I have for Dan uh, around Thinkful and then also uh, his background. So, Dan, the first question that I want to ask you about... What do you think that the traditional university system will look like 10 years from now? Yeah, wow. Um, that's a tough question. Um, so I, I think to, to go back to the lines I tried to draw within the traditional system, um, I, I think the community college system is going to be uh, even larger and, and more robust, uh, and, and people are going to be turning to it for 
shorter bursts of education on, on specific skills. Um, and I think that the sort of middle tier of universities uh, is going to have to find something new. And I don't actually know what that is. Um, but, I, but I think the, the sort of mid-private university that's basically overpriced right now and not delivering uh, is going to have to find something new. And that's where we're going to see the most change and potentially the most innovation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as, I guess, at the bottom in community colleges, uh, sort of finding ways to make them effective and, and scale the effective programs. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Another thing on, on your website, you talk a lot about having students engage in project-based work with their mentors. Uh, can you give us some examples of that? Sure. Um, so actually nearly nearly uh, the entire course, for example, for, for front-end development, uh, you're actually just building things. Uh, the, the curriculum isn't geared towards spending a lot of time reading or watching videos. It's geared towards getting you into a text editor building websites that are at first really simple and, and over time get more and more complex, uh, starting to deal with harder programming challenges as you go. Um, so um, you know, w- one example is we're actually just adding an, an intermediate front-end project, uh, which is to build a web-based game similar to Flappy Bird, if you're familiar with it. I've heard the name. That's about all I know, though. <laughs> sure, fair enough. Well, it's, it's one of these games where you... Uh, sort of help a, a bird or another animal kind of move up and down through the browser as obstacles go by. Oh, okay, got it. Perfect. And so those are our pieces of the project work would be kind of a gamification piece as well. Exactly. You might build a game, you might build a, a simple website, you might build, uh, you might build a, a, a website for a business that you're thinking about or an application for a business you're thinking about. Um, the, the iOS course, for example, ends in a capstone uh, where you actually build a mobile app based on your own idea. Got it. Perfect. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I, I had actually, it was more of a civic engagement project in school, but that was in a project that we did where kind of our, our capstone was was working with a nonprofit to implement a program that, that we, had, we had developed. And it was one of the most valuable things, just being able to get hands-on and apply everything I'd learned that semester. So I, I love that model and, and I love that you're, you're bringing it in everything you do. I think that's, that's hugely important. So, so let's talk uh, real quick about the, the Teal Fellowship. Um, can you explain to us just kind of a, a brief story on, on kind of what that looked like for you and, and what made you decide to apply in the first place? Sure. Um, I, yeah, I actually was, was having a great time at school. So a, a lot of times people expect that, you know, it's, it's for that kind of disgruntled college student. But the, uh, <laughs> I and, and, uh, and a couple of friends who applied from school as well were all really enjoying school. Um, but we still had this itch that we wanted to do something uh, just a little bit more out there, a little bit more in the world. Um, everything feels very contained within the university system, you know, down to uh, down to the, it's got its own sort of judicial system, right? Um, it's it's really these uh, these small uh, these small communities within the bigger world and and. Uh, you're you're studying the broader world, uh, but but not a part of it. Uh, I, I think was was part of our feeling, um, and so uh, we just wanted to do something that had a bigger impact. Um, and so uh, ended up applying for it, and uh, was lucky enough to to get the opportunity to join the first class. Um, and I spent the first year of it. It's a, it's a two year program, 
actually um, working in two different jobs, first at a, a small venture capital firm here in New York, um, and second at a uh, product development studio, building products for startups. And, and I saw that year basically as building skills, um, as focusing on uh, learning areas that I, that I was weaker in and, uh, and, and starting to build a bit of a community around me uh, so that when I started something, um, I was first of all more competent and, and uh, brought more to the table. And second, that I had uh, sort of support systems around me and people I could turn to for advice or for help with specific problems. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the, the Teal Fellowship, at least the, the basics of it. But can, can you explain to us the philosophy behind, because you, you have to essentially, you can't be graduated from college, right? You have to be in college and then stop going to college. Is that right or am I misinterpreting that? Uh, you don't have to be in college. So there's actually oh. some people who, uh, who joined from right out of high school, but you have to be oh, okay. under 20 years old when you start. Got so the okay. uh, majority are coming from college. Okay. And so what would you say is a core philosophy behind having people do that? Um, the, so the, the core philosophy was to one show that people could, uh, could in fact succeed without a university degree, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially motivated students who, who sort of by default choose to go to college and, you know, accumulate degrees and, and second to, uh, draw attention to this question of, uh, whether the higher education system, uh, might be broken and might have flaws. Because it was, it was, you know, going back five years, really not something people were talking about. Got it. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for kind of sharing that in the background there. I want to move us into just the last section where I'll, I'll close us out. Uh, and this is just kind of a, a rapid fire segment where I, I ask you a few questions just to give you the chance to give, give us some resources that you're using so we can take right back and, and bring these into our movement. So you ready to finish this out, Dan? Yep. Okay. Sounds good. So what is a social venture aside from thankful that you think we got to check out? Uh, I love Watsi. Uh, it's a funding marketplace for, uh, for healthcare for patients around the world. Okay. Watsi, W-A-T-S-Y? Uh, W-A-T-S-I. T-S-I. Okay. Perfect. Sounds good. And for everyone tuning in, as always, I'll be putting those in the show notes. So you'll be able to link right into that. So don't try writing anything down if you're driving or anything crazy like that. <laughs> so, all right, Dan, here we go. Uh, so what's an online resource you're using, like a Zendesk, for example, that you think all social entrepreneurs should use? Uh, that's, that's a tough question. Uh, I'm not sure we actually have one that, that all social entrepreneurs should use. Um, you know, there's, there's a thousand SaaS tools these days. Um, but, but I don't think there's one that, that we've found that's universal to social entrepreneurs specifically. Do you have any kind of a resource either online or offline that you're, you're just using and really loving that's really helping you grow your movement? Um, sure. That's a polemic bank. You know, there's, there's really not one that stands out. Actually. No, no problem. <laughs> Pass is an okay answer on these uh, questions. Yeah, too. <laughs> Sorry, I should have should have given you that option from the get go. But no, yeah. no problem. What about a piece of advice you'd give to an aspiring change agent? Uh, so, so I would actually go back to what I said before, which is focus on the problem and keep focusing on the problem until you're sure you understand it. Um, you know, even if that means going to work in the industry or uh, doing something other than than. Uh, starting a nonprofit or a company, um, just focus on the problem and really understand it. Perfect. What's a favorite fun escape for you, Dan? Uh, you know, I went on a first yoga retreat recently. 
So I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. I love that. You know, I I'm, I'm hearing about yoga more and more that it's making me think it's something I need to try again. I, I tried it once and almost wrenched my neck and then I just gave it up and that's been several years. So it might be time to get back in. <laughs> so good stuff. What's a cause-based book that you think we all should read? Uh, so I'm not sure if this is sort of classically cause-based, but uh, there's a, my, my favorite book on management is, uh, the football coach, Bill Walsh's book called the score takes care of itself. Um, and you know, I, I think to him, it would be a cause based book because, because his work was a cause and it was a mission. Um, you know, even if it's not, not sort of classically a cause, but it's, uh, it's just his philosophy on, on how to lead. And, and I, uh, highly recommend it. Perfect. Thanks. Well, last question before I let you say goodbye. Uh, what's the first thing you think we can all do right now to start changing the world? Uh, I, I think we should all uh, sort of take a little bit more time to, to think about what drives us and then uh, make sure what we're doing is in line with that. Perfect. Love it. Well, Dan, before I say goodbye to everyone out there, I just want to give you uh, this chance here to share any last thoughts you have with with us over here at Voices of Social Change. And then lastly, just let everyone know the best way to get plugged in with you and and the work you're doing over at Thankful. Sure. Um, Well, feel free to check out our website at at thankful.com or email me directly. It's just Dan at Thankful. Um, And uh, thanks for having me. Terrific. Well, on uh, behalf of Social Change Nation, Dan, we just want to thank you so much for your generosity with your time and and your expertise. Uh, We're all out there aspiring change agents or just starting out. (laughs) We're creating our own own cause-based movements. So we'll really take this and and leverage it into our own movements on our own ends. So thank you again for being with us. And Social Change Nation, I will catch you again next week. Hey, remember, for all of us tuning into the Voices of Social Change podcast today, Audible is offering a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial to give all of us the opportunity to check them out. I can personally recommend this because I've listened to Audible audiobooks now for about six years. They've been a critical ingredient to shaping me as a change agent, and you're listening to a podcast now, so clearly you love audio content. So run in there, get a free book. I'm going to recommend a book for you today. You heard me mention this at the beginning, but It's The Promise of a Pencil by Adam Braun. It's 30 mantras on how to spark change. Adam is a revolutionary in this space, and he's making some tremendous waves, so you need to pick up his book. It shapes so much about what we do here over at Social Change Nation. To get that book for free, go to this link. It's audibletrial.com slash social change audibletrial.com slash social change. And again, we'll be keeping that in the show notes all through the next few months. So you can click right in and get your free audiobook. Hey again, Change Nation, Josh here, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dan uh, from Thinkful. So I really was excited for that interview and I'm even more excited now. As always, I'm talking to you just afterwards while the interview is still fresh in my head. And so I want to chat through kind of my key takeaways and hopefully help uh, help us start applying some of these things to our own movements, because that's what this is all about, right? Talk to the best change agent, uh, talk to the best, brightest, most talented, most experienced change agents out there so we can take what they know and apply it on our end. 
and bring it into our movements and learn from their mistakes, learn from their successes, learn from their philosophies and just get overall inspired by them, right? That's that's the goal. So that's the point of this little chat that I've been adding at the end of my podcast is to just kind of take you through, okay, we just heard this interview, but let's actually think about how we can take some action steps and how we can can think about what we just learned. And so what I want to break into, first of all, wow. (laughs) Uh, I don't know about you, but that interview I thought was incredible. And I loved being able to interview a Forbes 30 under 30. So if that's not something you've heard of, um, Forbes magazine, I mean, it's, you know, pretty self-explanatory. Forbes magazine profiles 30 entrepreneurs under 30 years old, and they do it in a lot of different industries, right? So uh, they would have 30 in social entrepreneurship and then 30 in tech or something like that. So Dan made it into the social entrepreneurship category, which is an amazing achievement in and of itself. But the other thing that he got, and this is what I really want to talk about because this is what I'm most interested in. He got what's called the Teal Fellowship. I think I said Thiel at one point in time, but then he said Teal, so I'm pretty sure it's Teal. Um, Anyway, Peter Teal uh, was one of the co-founders of PayPal, so very well-known name, especially in the tech space and the entrepreneurship space. Well, he created this fellowship, and you heard me mention when I was chatting with Dan, and I don't know that I've mentioned this as much on here before, but I I am a teaching assistant at a university, just finishing up at, at Kansas University, and I, I teach out there, so I really have my head in the traditional university space, and frankly, I, I see a lot of challenges there. I see a lot of students who are being touched by that system that would be better suited to something like what Dan is creating. Um, now, that's certainly not everyone. I mean, I, I absolutely believe, like Dan does, that, that university model still has a fit. But where I especially, though, you know, being in the, the system, so to speak, for now, where I really do have a problem is what Dan talked about. And, and this is kind of what I want to lead into what I'm going to highlight today. Dan talked about those, those bigger for-profit universities. So this would be like at University of Phoenix is one of the most well-known names. Um, I'm trying to think of a few others. Uh, DeVry Institute to some extent, but they're at least a little more technical. Um, oh, let me think. Here we have a Rasmussen College, for example. And the, the, the challenge with these institutions, and, and you know, I'm, I am painting them with, with a, a single brush. I hope you'll forgive me on that. It's just kind of a reality here. I have a short window with you, so we can't necessarily unpack things as well as I might like. But in general, those larger for-profit universities like the University of Phoenix are probably providing very good instruction. But what I take issue with is the fact that they are for-profit institutions, which I have no issue there, but the fact that they are then taking government funds, encouraging these students to take on student loans, bringing in federal grants, and then a lot of that money is making it to shareholders, that, from just my political standpoint, I take issue with. What I think also happens, not only do you saddle students with a lot of debt, and a lot of these colleges are having trouble, you know, just as much trouble as any other college placing students in good jobs. So you saddle them with all that debt, they have trouble getting a job, and you know, the instruction 
is I think good. I mean, usually you're dealing with people that, that have some experience in these areas, but still, I just, I, I really take issue with an institution that is for profit and then bringing in all this government money. I think if you're going to be for profit, you need to be able to stand on your own. And Dan really sounded like from everything we were talking about, he really shared that. I mean, he made that statement about those larger for profit universities taking, taking government monies. And so that's that's a, a challenge there, I think. And the problem is it inflates the price, right? Anytime you have a closed system that you're so, you know, closed system, meaning like, you know, colleges kind of operate independently. I mean, some of these colleges and universities are like little cities, right? They operate kind of independently of what's going on around them to some extent. And so anytime you pump a lot of money into that system, you're going to jack the prices up. We see the same thing with healthcare to a large extent. I mean, you look at the rate of growth of cost of healthcare, and it's always much, much higher than inflation. Part of that reason is because it's this kind of closed little city system that a lot of money is getting pumped into from a lot of different directions. And so that jacks the prices up within that closed system, but it doesn't necessarily have any relation to, you know, what what we have going on in our lives in terms of like, I don't know, the cost of bread and how that price goes up and that kind of thing. Right. So so it changes that dynamic. And, and I think anytime you pump more money into a system like that, that's just kind of quote unquote free money, that's a challenge you run into is you, you just jack up the costs. You jack up the prices. I shouldn't say you jack up the cost. You jack up the prices for people. And so that's a big challenge I have with those larger for-profit universities. And then Dan also made a good point that there are these nonprofit private universities that are, and again, I'm not saying all of them, don't hear me wrong there, but there are these larger nonprofit private universities that are charging double and triple what a state institution is charging and not really providing a higher quality education for that increase in price. In fact, in, in a lot of instances, they're actually providing a lower quality. And I won't really dig into that. You know, I'll leave you to take a look at that and, and kind of make your own decisions. But again, I'm in the system. This is what I see. I also, for undergraduate, through some financial aid, was able to go to a small liberal arts college. And so that was a private institution. But, you know, they really sold themselves. And, and I think did, especially now that I'm teaching in the larger university system, you know, I can absolutely see the value in that. I had smaller classes. My students came from a lot of different or my, my classmates came from a lot of different places around the world. You know, they, they had certain backgrounds and certain level of things that they brought to the table that was really good to have that dynamic and that interaction in the classroom. But I also know that that is that is unique we were a, a much more competitive private institution. But for a lot of these, what's happening now is there are a lot of these private nonprofit institutions, and I think this is what Dan was talking about, where they're, like I said, there's they're some, in a lot of instances, probably providing a bit lower quality education than the public universities. And by the way, public universities here in Kansas, I mean, we have lots of options, right? Kansas University is a very big public university, but if you want that closer attention, smaller classes, that kind of thing, you know, you can choose something like a Fort Hayes State where I actually attended their first semester and I loved it. Um, the only reason I, I didn't stay there was because, you know, I'm from Kansas. I wanted to go to a, a different school out of state. And so I, tr I transferred into Minnesota, but that was always the plan. I mean, I, I came just kind of as a bridge semester there, but I loved it. It was amazing. I mean, I, I had some of my best professors I've ever had. I had smaller classes and that's just a mid-sized state school and it was very affordable. So you know, those options really tend to beat out a lot of these kind of quote unquote, middle of the road, nonprofit universities. And I think the point that Dan was making was, you know, no matter, even if you don't agree with that, even if you think that, that those mid-level private nonprofit universities are providing great value, 
their model is being challenged because they're having trouble bringing in students. And the reason that they're having trouble bringing in students is because the educational landscape is changing. And that's what I want to dig into here today, because I really do think that the educational landscape is changing. And for us as change agents, we need to be able to understand that. But this this is something that will impact you no matter what line of cause-based business you're getting into, no matter what movement you're behind. The changes in education are going to impact all of us because because by and large, a lot of people aren't, aren't, aren't getting it. And so that means that we're going to have a lot of people going through these for-profit universities, going through these nonprofit privates, going through some of these larger public universities when that's not the fit for them. And they're going to come out and they're going to have trouble linking up what they've learned with skills that they can actually apply in the marketplace. And that is going to create situations where we need to serve people and where we need to educate people. And not only that, it's it's as we create a movement, again, no matter what field we're in, it's going to change the dynamic of who comes out of college, especially as things like Thinkful grow. And I really do believe they will. And let's talk about that for for a minute. But I I would say the moral of my takeaway here is that education is changing dramatically, specifically higher education. I mean, all education at all levels, but I'm just going to talk about education here. Higher higher education, excuse me, is all I'm going to talk about. Higher education is changing dramatically. And you have to be aware of what's going on no matter what cause you're getting into. So let's talk about that just real briefly. The way I want to do that is I want to just talk about, Dan and I talked about that, that Teal Fellowship. I mentioned that again at the beginning here. He and I talked about that. I I wanted to unpack that a little bit more for you here. First of all, though, I would definitely recommend that you go check it out. It's Teal, T-H-I-E-L, fellowship.org. So all one word, Teal, T-H-I-E-L, fellowship.org, tealfellowship.org. Go ahead and check that out. I ran to the site. Now, I've, I've been pretty familiar with this, and I love the quote that they have on the main page, and it's from Mark Twain, and it says, I have never let my schooling interfere with my education. And I think that's a, a powerfully profound statement, and that's something that Dan mentioned. He and I talked about how he has, the they have, Thinkful has their students engage in project-based work. They're working with mentors that have done this work before. And so... As they get out and have those experiences, that's where the education really happens. And so it's interesting that the Teal Fellowship is really built around this idea of the educational landscape changing. Peter Teal has some pretty strong philosophies on that, but let me just read you a little bit about the Teal Fellowship. The Teal Fellowship is unlike anything you've ever experienced. The fellowship brings together some of the most creative and motivated young people and helps them bring their most ambitious product projects to life. Teal Fellows are given a grant of $100,000. Yeah, you heard that right. A hundred grand. It's over the course of two years. A hundred grand to focus on their work, their research, and their self-education while outside of the university. That's key, right? The Teal Fellowship. The Teal Fellowship is paying students to leave the university. I think Dan mentioned this on the call, but you have to be, I believe it was under 20 or under 22, but the bottom line is you have to be at that point where traditionally students are going to college so fellows are mentored by our community of visionary thinkers investors scientists and entrepreneurs who provide guidance and business connections that can't be replicated in any classroom with tens of thousands and additional resources summer housing regular workshops our theo foundation summits fellowship dinners and retreats we've built a robust community and program to accelerate your professional and personal development rather than just studying you're doing 
So that's what Dan applied for. And you heard him mention it. He was at Yale. (laughs) He was at Yale and he was loving it. But this came along and he saw it as a stronger educational opportunity. And it was worked out very well for him. Thankful is, is a large organization. He has a large team and he seemed to, you know, very much value the decision that he made to do that, even though he was enjoying school. Let me look at the mission of the fellowship. The, the Teal Fellowship is a community of visionaries creating a radical rethinking of what it takes to succeed and improve the world through self-directed learning, independent thought, and meaningful contributions, which as I read that, I am going to have to get in touch with every Teal Fellowship I can because that is exactly who we want to talk to here at, uh, on, on Voices of Social Change. So I'll work to bring you more of, of these fellows because I think the insights that they're going to have, I mean, this is really top-notch people that we're talking about here. So I'll do what I can to bring you more of those. But so you have a little bit of an idea there about the Teal Fellowship. And like I said, I would encourage you to run to the website. I read just a few things off the website, but go ahead and run back there. But basically then, you know, the students are given this this hundred grand. They're provided housing in San Francisco. They're connected with a lot of these startup entrepreneurs. And they're really just plugged into the community right away, encouraged to do, encouraged to work on projects, encouraged to make mistakes. And there's a key point for you. Encouraged to make mistakes, encouraged to fail. Why would they do that? Well, because it's through failure that we truly learn. I mean, think about it. I can, I can highlight a number of, you know, quote unquote failures in my life, times when I've crashed, but those were the times that I learned the most. It was unpacking what I did wrong and figuring out how to correct it. That, that, that was when I really grew as a person, right? Not when someone just gave me kudos for a job well done when I had just done the same kind of job that I had been doing for the last five years. Now, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's, it's good that, you know, we want certain things. We can't fail at, fail at everything, right? But you're going to have to fail at some things. And think about our university system. It's not set up to encourage failure in any way, shape, or form. You have a particular set system, a particular set of things that you need to do, a very, very set timeline and track. And that's what you need to stick to. And if you try to deviate from that or think outside the box, excuse me, I'm going to need to clear my throat. <clears throat> And if you think outside the box on that, then you're not following the system and you're a failure, which is never a good thing in the traditional university system. In the world, failing is not necessarily a good thing either, but it's an important thing. It's a necessary thing and it's the way we grow. And so Teal Fellowship really embraces that. And I love that piece about it. Now, you might be saying to yourself, and I said the same thing too when I heard about the Teal Fellowship, well, that's all well and good, but this is only a few people. It's San Francisco. You know, you can't, I mean, there's tons of entrepreneurs there. It's like the Mecca of startup life, right? So you can't really duplicate this. Wrong. Because I'm here in Kansas City and we have the Kansas City Startup Village And that's a place that's full of entrepreneurs and a great ecosystem of learning and growth and people failing and growing. And we also have the University of Missouri at Kansas City, which has an amazing entrepreneurship program. We have our mayor who is committed to making Kansas, not just our mayor, but a lot of public officials on the city staff committed and people in Kansas City in general committed to making Kansas City the most entrepreneurial city in the world. We're just in Kansas City, folks. But imagine what could happen if, and we've been doing this, by the way, as we get students 
plugged into what's going on in the Kansas City Startup Village, to entrepreneurs working together, to people growing companies, to people trying to solve world-bending problems. Now, the reason Kansas City Startup Village formed, I mean, the, the big catalyst for it was the fact that Kansas City was the first city that ever got Google Fiber. It's incredibly fast internet. It's like a hundred times anything else that's out there. And so a lot of tech companies came to take advantage of that with the thinking that, you know, you think about when we moved from dial up to high speed internet and, you know, most people having high speed internet, that was when we got YouTube and that was when we got Netflix and streaming. It wasn't the internet alone that made those things possible. It was a lot of people having access to high speed internet was why we could get things like YouTube and Netflix. So what's the next big thing? What's the next big thing when when we're talking about 100 times speed internet? Personally, I think one of the biggest things is going to be education. Because with that kind of internet speed, I know it sounds like a small thing, but remember, YouTube, Netflix, not made possible by the internet, made possible by high speed internet. Internet was around for a long time before YouTube and Netflix were here. Right, so what's the next big thing? I think the next big thing, when you're talking 100 times, the speed of the high-speed internet we have right now, I think one of the next big things is a radical disruption in education, higher education specifically. Because with that kind of speed, one of these days, I know this might sound far-fetched, but one of these days in the not-too-distant future, you could essentially project a hologram of a professor across several different classrooms. And that professor could interact with students all over the world. And that's a great thing. Because I want education to be accessible, especially higher education, to be accessible for anyone in the world who wants it. And we as change agents should want that too. But we should demand that it's education that requires people to do real work, to get out into the world and to make something happen. And we want it to be the kind of education that embraces failure, doesn't push students towards it, but lets it happen and then requires them to ask, okay, what went wrong and how can we learn from this? That's what these new educational programs are doing above all else. They're getting people really involved. They're encouraging growth from failure. And that is what higher education is going to have to do. So you want to be a change agent? Find a way to help make that happen. No matter what industry you're in, there is an educational entity like Thinkful somewhere that you can get plugged into. Maybe you could run a class on something like a Skillshare.com. Or you could run a class on a, what's the other one? Udemy.com. These are all individuals who are doers who are also running classes online. I think that's a responsibility of all of us. I think all of us as doers have a responsibility to teach a bit. Maybe you're not going to create a class online. Maybe it's just mentoring somebody. Not just, because mentorship is huge. <laughs> uh, maybe it's, it's the ability to mentor somebody. Um, those are the things that we as change agents need to be doing and need to be thinking about as we spark change in the world of education, in the world of work, and in the way people learn and grow. And that's something that affects us all. Okay, that was everything I had for today. So I do hope you have a great rest of the week. And I will catch you again right here on Voices of Social Change next week with another great interview. Take care and have an awesome weekend. 
Well, hey, Change Nation, thank you again for joining us for that week's interview. That takes us out of part two and my comments. So that's the week with that social entrepreneur. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Shoot me an email at josh at socialchangenation.com. I'm always glad to chat. Also glad to take any recommendations for someone you think I ought to interview, content you think I should create, anything like that. This is a community of change agents. And so in order for that to work, I love having that dialogue. Lastly, stay connected with us. If you haven't popped into our newsletter, please do that. Also, check out our social good shopping guide at socialgoodshopping.com. These are the kinds of things that we put out for our community, and we'd love for you to take advantage of that, and we'd love to be connected with you as you create business that makes a dollar and a difference. 